Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's good to see you. Uh, somebody's happy back there. It is very good to see you. Um, my family and I had a chance to celebrate Thanksgiving in Cincinnati, Ohio. We went up to see uh, our oldest daughter who's in college up there, and uh, Nathan did a great job filling in last week. I'm appreciative of him preaching for us. Uh, we are blessed to have him and uh, a couple other guys on the elder team with me. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I'm the lead pastor here as well as one of the elders, and uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do so after the service is over with. Um, this past Last week, uh, in fact, Friday night, I think it is, I sent out a little bit of an email a little prematurely. I was either so excited about the, uh, the potluck and or the Q&A, or I was confused. I, I'm going to go with the second one, and that is I sent out an email on Friday night and said, hey, hope y'all can make it tomorrow for the potluck and the lunch and all of that, and immediately I started getting texts. I knew at least three people had read the email because within five minutes of sending it, people sent me a text saying, Alan, are you tired? Are you okay? Do you know what day it is? Do you know what's going on? And I'm like, what? What did I say? And I was like nervous. I'd said something really horrible. Like I didn't know what I'd said and done, and uh, I looked, and I had the date wrong. And so anyway, the lunch is happening today. And uh, so if you brought something to share with the church family, great. If you didn't bring anything to share with the church family, that's okay. Stick around. Or if you're concerned, I don't know if there's the food I like or not, then here's what I'd love for you, for you to do. As soon as the service is over with, run out the door, go to a fast food restaurant and come right back with some food. Either way, we would love for all of us to stick around, to be able to spend some time together eating lunch and then also along the way we'll discuss a little bit of the 2022 proposed uh, budget and all of that's important. Fellowship time is important and how we uh, seek to be wise stewards of what God has blessed us with as a church family. So I would encourage you to be a part of the lunch and budget discussion after the service this morning. All right, we are coming to the end of 2021. I don't know if you knew that or not, uh, but it's almost 2022. I know some of you just started learning to write 2021 on the date. Well, you're about to have to flip the calendar and do 2022 in about four short weeks. But we are finishing up this series that we've walked through the whole year through the book, uh, uh, sorry, through the New Testament, and we are in the book of Matthew now. Uh, I know that uh, the cat kind of got out of the bag last week uh, with Nathan, and that's okay. And here's the deal. We are going to, in the month of January, begin a new series on the book of Acts. And we're going to walk through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we will be there many weeks as we walk through the entire book of Acts. I encourage you to be a part of what God is doing in our church body as we walk through that together. We will learn all about what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples, who, who seek to be the church all for the glory of God. And I encourage you to be a part of uh, the 2022 preaching calendar. Uh, in fact, it probably will be almost the entire year in the book of Acts with maybe a break here and there like at Easter time and things like that. So that's kind of where we're headed. But right now, we are finishing up the book of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible handy, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bible to Matthew uh, we'll be in chapter 5, and on the back of the worship guide, you will see the sermon notes. If you'd like to use those, also the sermon notes will be popping up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to be able to look at a hard copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible. It should be in a chair underneath you or around you. And then here's the deal. If you need a Bible at the house, then you are more than well, uh, welcome to take that home as a gift from us, and you can keep that Bible. 
We are in the middle of Christmas or Advent. We, we lit uh, 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 the newest candle for Advent just a moment ago. And the word Advent just simply means coming or arrival. It's a season of anticipating the coming of Christ. And so I want us to try to somehow put ourselves in the shoes of the Old Testament followers of God. Think for a minute. They had heard for hundreds of years that there was a coming Messiah. They had heard over and over and over again from the prophets and from the scripture that a Savior was coming, that a Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one was coming. And then guess what? The Old Testament closes. The last book in our uh, Old Testament is Malachi. And do you know what happened after Malachi is written and closed? Absolutely nothing, apparently. For over 400 years, there appears to be total, utter silence from God. The reason I say appears is because God is never absent. God is always present. I've talked to some friends this week. And this season, for some of you because it's Christmas and Advent, for some of you because it's coming out of COVID, for some of you because it's coming out of all the political turmoil that's happened in our nation, because for some of you it's illness or sickness, for some of you, I literally heard this morning that a spiritual attack is just coming on you and your family. Some of you it's because of loneliness. For some of you it could be another reason that I've not listed. It is a hard, hard season. And for some of you, perhaps it feels like God is silent. God, I've cried out to you. Where are you? I need you. I, I need to sense your presence. Uh, what I'm not doing is I'm not minimizing what you're going through. But what I am saying is I'm speaking into what you and I are going through. And I want you to know that God is just as much Emmanuel, God with us today, as he ever has been. And so as you go through, as we go through this Advent season, there is a longing to sense the very presence of God. And God is with us. I'd encourage you along those lines, and then I'll get back to my sermon. I, di I didn't have that on my notes. But he here's the deal. I would encourage you. Would you press in? Would you be the church to one another in a way that maybe you have in the past, or maybe in a way you've never been, or in a way that you've longed someone else to be the church for you? Would you press in and be the body of Christ to and with and for one another? Are you plugged into a hope group? Those are our small groups that meet in homes during the course of the week. I know this much. Hope groups are a blessing to us. And we are a blessing to those that are in our hope groups. Love the folks in your life well. Reach out to them. Pray for them. Pray over them. Encourage them. We need each other. I said I was going to get to my sermon. I promise I'm going to, but I want to stay on this topic. This week, I texted a dear friend of mine that I'm going to leave completely um, anonymous here. But I texted a friend of mine. And I said, how are you doing? They said they'd had a rough week. I could have left it at that, but I pressed in and I said, tell me why is it rough? And they replied with something 
that I needed to hear as their friend and as their pastor, and I can pray for them more effectively. Don't take someone's answer as, how are you doing? And they say, fine, and leave it at that. Like, I'm not saying stand in front of somebody and say, you're lying to me. Tell me what you're really doing. I'm just saying love them well enough to really kind of pull out of them so that they can share with you their heart and where they're coming from. Guys, do we need each other? Has God put us in this family to be a family and not just come to a church service? We need each other. God has called the people that are a part of this church to be here, to be the body of Christ to each other. And we need each other. Now, outside of the fact that I felt like God led me to say that, I don't know where that came from. It's not in my notes. But as I talk about how the people of Israel were longing and waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, it must have been lonely and hard and confusing. God, you promised the Messiah was coming. And then 400 years passes after the Old Testament and nada, nothing. God, are you, are you sure he's coming? Like you said the Messiah is coming and he's not here. Is he ever coming? Well, the good news is we turn into the New Testament and what happens? Jesus does come. But I think we as God's people now can relate. I don't want to minimize the waiting that the people of Israel did on, on the Messiah coming, but you and I have been waiting for almost 2,000 years for him to come back. You see, when we celebrate the Advent, that's the coming of Christ in two fashions. One, we remember that he came and, and was born and lived on this planet 2,000 years ago, that he died for our sins. We, we acknowledge what this Christmas season is about, but the other portion of Advent is looking forward to his soon and quick return, even though it's been 2,000 years of waiting. I want us to think about the Christmas season. Think about all the preparation that goes into our lives. Some of you, even as I list these things, may get a little bit anxious because as I list them, you may go, uh, yep, that's some preparation I haven't yet done. And I may make you anxious. That's not my intention, but I'm acknowledging the preparation that goes into place. We, we maybe hang the Christmas lights. We maybe put up the Christmas tree. We, we shop. We buy, we bake, we plan, we schedule events, we schedule times for people to come to our house or for us to go to their house. We, we have hope group parties, we have different activities, things at, at work. All kinds of preparation goes on during the season. My plea to us is that we would, in the midst of our busyness and planning and preparation, that most importantly, we would prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus by celebrating this Advent season together. We're going to study the Gospel of Matthew to help us do that. Perhaps on the front of your worship guide, you see the logo or the, the design for this series. It's called The Coming King. Beautiful design that reminds us that the King is coming again. And so in the book of Matthew, we're going to walk through several things 
that take place that remind us that he did come and the reason for his coming and that he is coming again. So I want to walk through, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, but I want to walk through a couple of uh, places in Matthew before chapter 5 that talks about the coming king. First of all, look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the list goes on from there as it walks through the genealogy of Jesus. But I want to point out that the writer of Matthew, uh, the the disciple of Jesus, Matthew, writes this from the context of this is the lineage of Jesus going to King David. So when we say he's the coming king... The fact that it goes back to David points out that Jesus is in the line of David, therefore he is the king. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. When the wise men come to King King Herod, it says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and here's what they said. Where is he who was born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So again, in Matthew chapter 2, we see that Jesus is the king. He is the king of the Jews. Then we can flip to chapter 4, and in chapter 4, we see Jesus starting his ministry. Perhaps you're wondering, what is his ministry like? What's he preaching? What's he doing? Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It's a summary phrase of how he began his ministry and is how, how he continued his ministry. It says, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I want you to see in this text, it says that he preached the gospel of the kingdom. So Matthew is full. I want you to pay attention as you read through Matthew, all the different ways that we see that Jesus is the king. Think for just a moment about a king. A king is sovereign. A king is in charge. A king has authority. And so in the text we're going to look at in chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus is the king and that because of who he is, we must follow and cherish his word to us. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 17 and we're going to walk through verse 20. This is at the beginning of what's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, He shares the Beatitudes to to begin in chapter 5. Then he talks about the salt and the light that we're called to be. And then I want us to read verses 17 through 20. These are all the words of Jesus. And he says, do not think that I, Jesus, have come. So there he is. He's coming. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven of heaven. Now, in these verses, we can see there is a heavy emphasis and focus on what is referred to in verse 17 as the law and the prophets. And then as we go through, the the word commandment is used. 
So what is it that Jesus means by the law and the prophets? Essentially, what Jesus is saying is the scripture that at that point they had, which is our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Whenever he says the law and the prophet, he's not talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's not just talking about uh, the prophet Isaiah. He's talking about those books of the Bible that we have. There's 39 of them in our Old Testament. And he's saying this Old Testament, that's not the terminology he used because it wouldn't have made sense to them. He used and said law and prophet. He says this law and prophet is what is pointing to me. So, Whenever you see the phrase law and prophets here, think entire Hebrew scripture, which is the Old Testament. I want us to see in verse 17, he's trying to clear up some thinking. Here's what Jesus says, do not think. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The word think here, the the Greek word for think here is is basically a word that means suppose or, or presume. It means someone who doesn't really know necessarily if it's true or not. It's just they think they know it's true. They presume or they assume. And so what he's saying is all of these people that are especially the religious leaders are looking at Jesus and they're seeing how he lives his life. They're calling him a sinner. They're calling him as one who is somehow destroying or, or downplaying God's law. And why is it that they're saying that? Because Jesus doesn't follow all of their traditions. And the truth of the matter is, the traditions they have in place are above and beyond, and their elaboration of what they think the scriptures teach. But Jesus himself never denied, never downplayed, and always lifted up the truth and the veracity of God's word recorded in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying two different times, look at it, he says two different times in verse 17, do not think this, it's not true. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says it there again, I have not come to abolish them. Jesus makes it clear that he is upholding the truth of Scripture. What does the word abolish mean? Here, the word abolish would would mean uh, to destroy or invalidate. Or to say, this isn't true. Let's think for a moment. Jesus was accused throughout the Gospels of being one who did things wrong. That he wasn't following their ways of doing things. Let me list some of the controversial, and I have controversial in quotes, some of the controversial things that Jesus did. He, He ate with sinners. He talked with women. And he healed on the Sabbath. Ooh, like all of those things they thought were forbidden, but the reality is this. What Jesus did was he lived out the spirit and the truth of God's word. He wasn't concerned about all of the fluff that they added on top of it. Did you know that there was, uh, um, you know, as they interpreted to keep the Sabbath day holy, they, they, they came up with these guidelines that basically said you could not walk any further than 1,000 meters from your home on the Sabbath day, or that would be dishonoring the Sabbath. Here's an interesting thing. Some of them got around that little law. Do you know how they did? They got a little backpack. They put some of their household possessions in it. They paced off 1,000 meters, and they go, oh, 
I'm further than I can walk. They take their backpack off. They go, oh, look, this plate belongs at my house. This is an extension of my house. And they'd set the plate down. And they go, oh, look, now I can go 1,000 meters again. And they'd go 1,000 meters. And they'd just leave these little bread trails. And they would go wherever they wanted to. Do you see what I'm saying? They were so caught up on all of the intimate details, precision of the law, and yet they ignored it themselves. Jesus is saying he did not come to destroy or overlook or, or put aside God's law at all. Rather, what does it say in verse 17? He didn't come to abolish them. He came to do the opposite. He said, I came to fulfill them. Let's think for a minute. How did Jesus fulfill the law and prophets? How did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? There's multiple ways that Jesus fulfills them. I want to walk through three things that, that I identify as how he fulfills the Old Testament. The first one is this. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. The Old Testament prophesies that a Messiah, a Christ, is coming, and Jesus fulfilled them all. We're not going to take the time to read them all because there's hundreds of them, but as it pertains to this idea of being the king, I did want to read one of the prophecies or, or one of the, the things that he fulfilled. Look at it. It should be on the screen. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. This is when King David was in, in power, and he's saying to God he wants to build God a house. He, he wants to build him somewhere uh, to, to, to set up for, for, for God. And God says, no, no, don't worry about that. Instead, I'm telling you what I'm going to do in you and in your household. And here's what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God says, and your house, David, and your kingdom shall be, for, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And here's Jesus in the line of David, the king whose throne is established forever. So one way Jesus fulfills the scripture is he fulfilled the prophecy in the scripture. The second way that I want to mention is that he had a total obedience to the law. He fulfilled the law because he obeyed it. He fulfilled it because he was not a sinner. Scripture says that all of us are sinners aside from Jesus. Look, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus fulfilled the scripture by fulfilling the prophecies, by also, secondly, by obeying the law. And then third, I want to mention this, and I want to focus here, that Jesus fulfilled the scripture because he is the completion or the accomplishment of the old covenant. In the Old Testament, the word testament just simply means covenant, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the old covenant described. And so when Jesus said, at the Passover meal holds up the, 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 the wine and says this blood, this wine is the blood of, of the new covenant that is set aside for you, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. I want us to look at Galatians chapter 3 together. There's lots of places we could turn, but one place is Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. And before I do that, let me kind of explain just a little bit further. Jesus completed or accomplished the Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant, because he lived a perfect life, he fulfilled the law, and then he sacrificed his life to bring us salvation. Here's what Paul says, Galatians 3, verses 23 through 26, I think is where I'm reading, yes. Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, 
the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So Jesus fulfilled everything the Old Testament was pointing to. And and because of that, Jesus is confident as he stands up and says, I did not come to abolish the law, rather I came to fulfill the law. I want us to see three different things about Scripture, and it's written there on your sermon notes. The, the first one is this, that Jesus is the theme of all Scripture. Jesus is the theme of all Scripture. It doesn't matter where you turn. You can go all the way back to Genesis. You can even turn into Leviticus. You can even turn into Numbers. You definitely can go into the Old and the New Testament. Every page you look at in Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus is the central character, the main character. He is what the scripture is all about. That's part of what it means to say that he fulfills the scripture. The title of my sermon, you may have noticed, says the king of the book. And the reason that I did that is because if the all of Scripture is about Jesus, then he is the king, and the book, the Scripture, the Bible, he is the king of it all. He is the central character. He is the central message of the Scripture. I found this little anonymous poem this week that I wanted to read to you. I don't know when it was written, but I do know it was anonymous, and it was in the commentary that I found this week. Here's the title of the poem. I find my Lord in the book, the Lord being Jesus. Here's what it says. I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the Rose of Sharon. He is the Lily Fair. Whenever, wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He, at the book's beginning, gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm, the burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God, the ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, and the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook. The face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He is the son of David, whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory, with John the apostle saw. Light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw. Bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. Now, as I read that, you may have been going, what in the world is all that about? And it's okay if that was your question. Uh, we could, if I had time, I could walk through all of those. But basically, about three-fourths of that is referring to the Old Testament and different events that took place in the Old Testament and saying, hey, when that took place, that's pointing to Jesus. And then the last uh, fourth of it or so is, is the events that took place in the New Testament. And the bottom line is this, wherever you open the Bible, you will find Jesus. Scripture is God's word to us to reveal himself to us. And how did God ultimately choose to reveal himself but through his son, Jesus Christ? I want us to look at another verse. It's found in John chapter 5. Jesus is talking, and he's saying that the scripture is important. 
And he acknowledges the scripture is important. We see that in Matthew chapter 5. But in this verse, he says, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And then he goes on from there and he says, eternal life is found in me. So he's saying, yes, eternal life is found in the scripture. And the reason eternal life is found in the scripture is because the, the scripture is about me. So everywhere you look in the Bible, sometimes you have to look a little harder than other places, but everywhere you look in the Bible, you can see Jesus Christ. And yet, have you ever noticed our tendencies that whenever we open the Bible, we see ourselves? Now, hear what I'm saying here. Yes, we should apply the truths of God's words to ourselves, yes. But when I say, have you ever noticed our tendency to open the Bible and see ourselves there, what I mean by that is we make ourselves the hero of the story. We read a story that I, I can easily point to. We read a story like David and Goliath. You know that story, right? Short little David, at least that's how I picture him, pretty short. He's getting these rocks, and he's got five of them. He's going to go battle against Goliath. Goliath is like 143 feet tall. He's huge. He's a giant. I mean, he, I'm, I'm exaggerating because it's a true story. He's like nine foot tall, but he's giant. And we read that and we go, by golly, I'm going to be David. I'm going to defeat the giants in my life. I'm going to overcome what I'm facing. Guys, the point of the story is not for us to insert ourselves and go, well, I wish I was David because David is amazing. No, the point of the story is I wish that I would trust in Jesus because he is the one that gives me the strength to overcome whatever I face in life. Did you know this as Americans? Whenever we open the book of Revelation, we automatically begin to assert, insert other nations in there, and we never insert the United States as one of the bad guys. We're always the good guys. What I'm saying is if we're not careful, when we open Scripture, we're looking too much in a centristic kind of way towards ourselves, when instead, when we open the Word of God, we must always see Jesus in it, and then the application will be appropriate in our lives. All too often, when we read the Bible, here's what we do. We read it, we sit down with a buddy, and we go, well, so what do you think that means, Joyce? And then I say what I think it means. We skip all the steps of studying it. We skip all the steps of observing what God's Word has to say. We skip all the steps of interpreting it correctly. There's only one true interpretation of every text of Scripture, while there can be multiple applications. But all too often, we skip all the other stuff that matters the most, and we jump right to the application, and we think that that's where the answer is. Start with a correct understanding of God's Word, and the correct understanding of God's Word always points to Jesus, and when it does that, then you'll apply it appropriately in your life. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I didn't preach last week, so I'm a little worked up. All right, here we go, here we go. Um... So Jesus is the theme of all scripture. Let's look at the second point. Second point is this, that scripture is perfect in every detail. Scripture is perfect in every detail. A little side note, I don't have it in my notes here either. There are all kinds of churches and denominations and preachers and teachers and Christians who want to think that scripture is changeable. Like that, that's old stuff. Like it's, it's outdated. Surely God didn't really mean that. Let me tell you what he really means. No, the reality is God's word, as it's recorded here, is completely perfect and true, and he doesn't need us to go telling him what it's supposed to mean. 
So it's true in every single detail. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, in other words, he's pointing to the permanence of the truth of God's word, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Before we kind of bite bite off this verse a little bit further, let, let us consider this truth, that all of scripture is God's inerrant word for us to study, obey, and teach to others. Hopefully a passage you're familiar with is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what Paul says, all scripture, not some of it, not buffet line style, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for teaching. All of it is, is profitable for reproof and for correction and for the training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of scripture is God's word for us. Now let's flip back to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus says, for truly, the the word in the Greek is amen. And whenever he says this, when he says for truly, or verily I say unto you, or amen, this is the way it is, he's saying what I'm about to say to you is of paramount importance. It's not like a filler. I use fillers sometimes, and maybe you use fillers. Uh, this, um, uh, maybe, uh, and we use these fillers. Jesus used all of his words wisely, and when he says, for truly I say to you, he's saying, listen up, because what I'm about to say is of utmost importance. And Jesus says, all of Scripture, down to the iota and down to the dot, is important. We'll talk about iota and dot in just a second, but I want us to look at the word not here. You're like, I know what the word not means, and that's okay, but let's look at it a little bit closer. In 18, he says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. In the Greek, did you know that there are actually two words side by side that are used for the word not? Oumei, that's how I pronounce it, O-U-M-E. It means oumei, and those two words are not, not. It's like not, not. Putting those together, he's saying for emphatic emphasis, I've repeated myself, that's redundant, but for emphatic emphasis or importance, he puts two words there. It's as if he's saying by no means, certainly not, absolutely not. Nothing that's written in God's word is unimportant. So what's an iota? Does anybody know what an iota is? You got an iota of an idea what it is? An iota is a a Greek letter. It's the smallest Greek letter. In the Hebrew, uh, if if he was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, he he would have used the word yod, which is the smallest Hebrew letter. I want to show you the Hebrew alphabet real quickly. Um, We're not going to walk through it all, but if you'll see down on the second row, the first one on the left is Yod. You see how small that character is. The Hebrew character is a little bit harder to read than Greek letters, but Yod up there at the top left there, uh, second row, Yod is the smallest of all the Hebrew letters. So Jesus is saying, even down to the smallest detail, God's word is important and perfect. And then he says dot. Well, what's a, what's a dot? Dot, perhaps in your translation, it could say this, a, a small stroke of the letter. A dot was a small mark that was used to help you distinguish between two similar-looking characters. Think for just a minute. In our English alphabet, the letter P and the letter Q are very similar, right? But where you put that mark makes all the difference, right? 
the letter C and E look the same, but if you, the lowercase letters, it, it, you got to kind of add that curve around to the E to make it different from the C. The, the letter B and D, where you put that line, matters, right, on either side. What Jesus is saying is that the smallest stroke of a letter matters as well. In many ways, a, a dot is similar to what we would refer to as a seraph. I don't know if you know what a seraph is or not. I'm not talking about like angels, but here is a seraph font. Both of those words say the same thing. They both say thin. But one of them, the one on the left, has some extra kind of slants and lines, and it's thicker in different places, and, and it's got little dots on them, if you will, okay? The other one's just kind of plain. There's no dots on there. Jesus is saying even the dots of the letter matter. Not just the T, not just the H, not just the I, not just the N, but every little nook and cranny. God's word is important. We must follow all of it. Jesus says none of it should be set aside. None of it should be ignored. None of it should be downplayed. None of it should be uh, relaxed. None of it should be ignored. So my question for you is how serious do you take God's word when you read God's word do you focus on every single iota and dot do you pay attention to all the I's being dotted and all the T's being crossed I challenge you when you read God's word whether you're reading a book that that that, that is not a the Bible but it mentions the scripture don't just skip past the scripture and keep reading the commentator's thoughts read the scripture when you're reading your bible in the morning or in the evening whenever you're reading it don't rush past it don't just skip portions of scripture don't just skim over scripture don't just breeze through any of it and say yeah yeah i've read this a hundred times it's the story of jesus birth i can tell it backwards and forwards i guarantee you you can't and even if you could your words are not the inspired word of god god's word is we have got to get back to serious study of God's word. All of God's word is about Jesus. He's the focal of God's word, so don't skim past it. Just like Jesus, we must have a full, unwavering loyalty to the word of God. So, so far this morning, we've looked at the fact that Jesus is the theme of the scripture, and then we've seen that scripture is perfect in every detail. And now I want us to finish by looking at the fact that cherishing, it's on your notes, cherishing scripture results in true righteousness. Mark 5, verses 19 and 20. Whenever he uses the word relaxes here, it's the same word as abolish that is written in verse 17. It's the same Greek word. He says, because he doesn't abolish God's word, we shouldn't either. Because he doesn't relax or ignore or deviate from God's word, neither should we. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What we see here is that God, that Jesus is calling us to cherish God's word so that it can lead us to live a life of worshiping him and a life of true righteousness. Again, in verse 19, there's this emphasis of don't overlook any of it. 
Did, did you notice? He said, don't relax any of it in verse 18. He said, in fact, don't, uh, sorry, I said 18. That should be 19. Don't relax any of it. Even the quote here says, the least of these commandments. You can go, well, that commandment's not all that important. No, Jesus says it all is. Like, don't ignore any of God's word. 100% of it should be followed and trusted. I found this quote this week. Based on verse 19, it says this, whoever minimizes the least of the commandments will be least in the kingdom. That's what Jesus says in 19. If you minimize even the least of the commandments, you will be least in the kingdom. And instead of being least in the kingdom, I encourage all of us to be kingdom disciples. And what does a kingdom disciple do? He or she, as a kingdom disciple, will be one who, um, sorry, there you go, I've lost my place in my notes, one who studies God's word, one who values God's word, one who obeys God's word, and one who teaches God's word. Do those qualities fit you? Are you one who studies it? Sometimes you'll hear me say, we should be reading the Bible. And when I say that, I'm actually meaning reading and studying. I'm not saying a casual reading. I'm not saying gloss over. I'm not saying read it quickly. I'm going to try to use the word study a little bit more. But if you hear me say read the scripture, please interpret. Alan means read and study. We can't just read it quickly and pass through it. Instead, we've got to spend time in God's word. Do you study God's word? Because if you study God's word, then you value God's word. Or even the other way is true as well. I'm going to start by saying I value God's word and because I value God's word therefore I must study it they work together study it and value it value it and you study it it all fits together value study obey because if you leave the obey part off then you haven't truly studied it right because if you study it there's got to be application value it study it obey it and then a step that I think we oftentimes leave off teach others you're like, Alan, you're the pastor. You're the one that's supposed to teach. Alan, the elders, they're the ones that are supposed to teach. I mean, didn't you see Nathan was up there last week? He got roped into that thing. He's an elder, so now he's got to preach sometimes. Like, that's the guy that's supposed to teach. Or my hope group leader, the, the pe- person that's the leader. No, the reality is 100% of us that are followers of Jesus are called to teach others about Jesus. So God's word is God's revealed word about himself. And this is not to Alan Pittman. This is to all people of all nations, of all tribes, of all languages, all over this globe. Therefore, it does apply to me. And therefore, I have a task to go out and teach and tell others. If you cherish God's word, then you will find opportunities to not only study it for yourself, to value it and to obey it, but also to teach it to others. Jesus says that when we do that, what's the end result? He says we become righteous, correct? Look down in verse 20, yeah, 20. He says that when we cherish God's word, because remember all of this, verses 17, 18, and 19 are all about God's word and the commandments that are written therein. He says in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me just say this. When Jesus' initial audience heard verse 20, there must have been a gasp. 
they had to have been astonished. Jesus, you're telling us that our righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Jesus, apparently you don't know who these guys are. These are like the all-stars. These guys are the superstars. These guys love the Bible. We can't live up to what they are doing. And I know what some of you are thinking, but Alan, they're hypocrites. It's easy to live up to their righteousness. No, the reality is this. When the people were around them, they didn't necessarily see their hypocritical things. They saw what appeared to be a rich, devout love for God. And they're like, there's no way I could ever live up to those standards. So what does Jesus mean when he says that our righteousness must exceed the, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? First of all, I want us to see that the scribes were more than just people who wrote things down. Like, if you know what a scribe is, you may think it's just somebody that copies things. Like, you've got a piece of paper here, and it's got a few words on it, you've got to copy it over to this side. Well, the reality is the scribes were much more than just people who would, would, would uh, copy things. Basically, back then, they didn't have the printing press, right? How did God's Word get recorded? Scribes. So they had to copy verbatim, handwritten, all the iotas and all of the dots onto the page right so these were experts in the law they knew it forwards and backwards they were true experts in the law and then the pharisees they were strict they were zealous they adhered to the law and the additional traditions and so the people would have heard this and they're like these are the super spiritual these are the biblical elites these are the experts. How can we live up to and beyond their righteousness? To help us better understand, let's look at their righteousness. Found also in Matthew chapter 23 this time. The Pharisees and the scribes' righteousness is described by Jesus in many places. But I want us to look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. This is a section referred to as the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. You don't want Jesus saying woe to you. <laughs> 25 through 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate and that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Look at verse 28. Outwardly, they were appearing righteous. That's why everybody thought they were the superstars. But Jesus says, no, outwardly you appear righteous, but inward you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What Jesus is saying over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is this, that we've got to move beyond an external fake facade of righteousness and we need to move into an internal real righteousness that then affects the external so that we are not only internally righteous but also externally righteous as well 
I don't want you to read that passage and go, oh, look, these guys were real clean on the outside. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. So as long as I'm kind of good with God on the inside, I can do whatever I want to and live a wild life. No, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's saying a true inward righteousness impacts the outside. So what's going on with the Pharisees and the scribes is this. They, they were focused on the letter of the law. You probably have heard of you know, the letter or the spirit of the law. They were focused on the letter of the law. And therefore, they came out with an external appearance of righteousness. But Jesus says that we should be focused on the spirit of the law and therefore be truly righteous. The reality is this. It's a lot easier to follow the letter of the law than it is to follow the spirit of the law. Let me give one example of a law. Jesus expounds on it in Matthew chapter 5. But, but here's the law. The law says do not commit adultery, right? So the letter of law says as long as I don't sleep with someone other than my wife, I am good, right? Jesus says no, buddy. There's way more than that side of the law. Jesus says when that law was written, what it means is this, don't even look lustfully after another person. So Jesus is saying, I have a higher demand of the law than the Pharisees do. Like, let's get down to what the internal intent of the word is. So I want us to finish this morning by considering what righteousness is all about. In verse 20, he says that we are to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And when I think of righteousness, I think of two aspects of righteousness. We are called to be positionally righteous. And what I mean by that is we can have no relationship with God unless the righteousness of Christ is put upon us. And so whenever we trust in Jesus for our salvation, we find out that we are positionally righteous, not because of who we are or what we do, but because of who Jesus is. Consider this verse. It's on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul is talking about Jesus here when he says, For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a kind of a word we use. It's not necessarily a big word, but it's a word we don't use on a regular basis. The righteousness of Jesus, whenever we trust in him for salvation, is imputed upon us. And to be imputed upon us means I am not righteous. I am a sinner. I cheer for the cowboys. I am not righteous on my own. Without Jesus' righteousness being imputed or placed upon me because of his free gift to me, I am unrighteous. But whenever I trust in Jesus for my salvation, Jesus' righteousness is placed upon me so that when the Father looks at me, he sees my righteousness. It's actually not my righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness because I am positionally righteous by what Jesus has done on my behalf. So some of us can go, okay, good. When God looks down at me, he sees me as righteous. That means, again, I can live my life however I want to. Absolutely not. Ooh, may. Not, not. That's not true. Rather, just because we have positional righteousness, we don't need to stop there. Instead, we, according to God's word, are to pursue an ongoing righteousness where we're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. 
So, here's what I want to challenge you with. Are you cherishing God's word? And if not, it's time that we begin to cherish it. Study it. Obey it. Value and honor it. Teach it to others. And if we do those things, then that internal righteousness begins to well up on the external and we begin to live a righteous life as well. There's this dangerous tightrope walk we have to do as followers of Jesus. Whenever we sin, we could beat ourselves up and say, I'm horrible, I'm no good, God doesn't love me. The truth of the matter is we didn't earn his love for us and we can't lose his love for us. But if we're not careful, we can take that and go, oh, that means I can live however I want to because when the game's over with, I go to be in heaven with him and that's all that matters. But the reality is this, that we are called to a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And therefore, if we truly cherish God's word, if we truly study, value, uh, obey it, and teach it, then we will live a life of righteousness. So this morning, I anticipate there's some of us that we need to come down here and do business with God, either right here at this altar or there at your seat. There's sin in your life that you need to confess because the reality is this. You are positionally righteous because you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, but you are far from it in how you're living your life. And what I'm not wanting to do is to beat you up about it. I'm wanting you to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit to do business with God this morning. There's others of you in this room, maybe watching online, you have never trusted in Jesus for salvation. You have made this whole thing about what you do. I go to church. I'm a member of a church. I'm staying for the potluck here in a minute. I was here last week, even though it was the day after, you know, a couple days after Thanksgiving. I prayed with my family at breakfast this morning. I've read the Bible through. I grew up in church. I'm an American. I'm a conservative. I mean, the list could go on and on and on and on. There's only one way for salvation. I said a moment ago, we're going to be walking through the book of Acts. There's a verse in Acts chapter 4 that says that there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in his righteousness? Stop trusting in yours. Have you trusted in him for salvation? Scripture says that all of us are sinners, that we're to repent of our sins and trust in the complete finished work of Jesus who lived a perfect life died a death that we deserve so that if we trust in him we can be made right with him I'm going to lead us in prayer at the end of the prayer we're going to sing a song or two in response I would encourage you please don't get up and head out the door like we'll be done in a few minutes and the restroom will still be there when we get done let's focus for just a minute on what God is saying to us. If this is true, and you know when I say if this is true, that's a sense this is true, but if this is true, then we cannot casually read the word. We can't casually hear the word. We must study, value, respond, obey, teach, and share. 
What is God saying to you this morning? Say yes to Jesus for the first time. Saying no to the sin that's in your life. Saying yes to the righteousness that God is trying to establish in you. I'll be available here if you'd like to pray with me or share with me what's going on. You can pull out your connection card, jot down your spiritual decision there, pray at the altar, pray at your seat. But let's do business with God this morning. Let me pray for us.